This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. final sermon for First John, so I'm excited about that. Then we'll have one more sermon uh, on the entire letter of Third John, which is possibly the shortest. I can't recall if Second John's a little shorter uh, in the whole New Testament, and then we will be done with our study of John. But <clears throat> these final nine verses of First John uh, basically summarize everything that John has said in this letter, and just as way of review, so we understand the historical context of what's going on here, uh, John is responding to believers uh, in the church, churches, but in particular probably one church in Ephesus, and they have contacted John somehow, I'm sure he's, he's close by, and they're concerned about uh, people who have left their church, and these men who have left and women, but particularly the teachers who have left, uh, are claiming a special anointing uh, that they have, some, some special spiritual insight that they have, and now they are, with some level of success, building a, a popular new kind of church down the street uh, from these churches, and they seemingly feel better, look better, sound better than the old kind of church that was founded on the apostles' teaching uh, specifically of eyewitnesses like John himself, and he's the last living one at this point. Now, the one and only problem with this new church is that even though it has a lot of, you know, probably great marketing and fantastic worship and all those types of things, they don't have sound doctrine uh, that accords with, with the words of Jesus. And though they claim to know everything about loving God, and they claim to know everything about loving people, uh, just by what they say and what they do, it's evident that that's not true. Paul warned uh, that this begins with bad doctrine. That behavior, what we do or not do, begins with having perverted teachings about Christ and specifically perverting the teachings of Christ. He says in 1 Timothy, warning a young pastor in the same city of Ephesus... Um, in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul teaches, If anyone teaches a different doctrine 
and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. So it's irrelevant how much how popular they are, how fantastic they are, how great sounding they are, they don't have teaching that aligns with what Jesus taught, then there's a problem. And so unlike the Ephesians, John isn't really upset that all these people have exited the church. In fact, he is somewhat or seems somewhat pleased that people have left because it simply proves that those people were the pretenders that they always were and they were never in the truth to begin with. And he says that in the beginning of his letter, Basically, uh, now we know what we already knew. So now, though, he writes to the Christians who are still in this church, who have remained there, and are a little frightened or fearful, a little uncertain of their own faith and what's going on here. And he reminds them in this letter 27 times to abide in Christ. Which, you tell someone anything 27 times, it's a pretty good clue that that's what the heart of what you're trying to say is. He says, abide in Christ. He wants them to rest permanently assured in the truth of their relationship with the one true God through the one true Savior that brought them into the one true fellowship, which is the bride of Christ. And as John does this in his letter, he's very plain, very direct. Um, not, it's very difficult to misunderstand what he's saying most of the time. He uses different voices, though, as he goes through this. Uh, sometimes John speaks as, we'll just say, Pastor John. And Pastor John, he's 90 plus years old, he's an old fart, and he is one of the, he is the last living apostle, so the last guy to, to interact with Jesus, to touch Jesus, to hear Jesus, to know Jesus, see Jesus. And he writes as kind of this wise old grandfather shepherd who is tenderly guiding this young flock. And John, it's evident that he loves these guys. He loves these churches, and he speaks uh, at times with the patience of a father who really wants to just kind of assuage the fears of his kids and say, don't worry, everything is okay. He doesn't write as, as kind of a, a dictator father demanding obedience, but just this kind of warm grandfather who wants more than anything for his people to love God and to love one another. And he uses terms often like beloved, constantly, in my little children, constantly, to evidence that. And so sometimes he speaks as his priestly pastor. But there's another voice that John uses, if you see, and he speaks as, as a teacher. And John knows that our assurance of faith, the assurance of a Christian faith, is not rooted in just feelings. It's rooted in, in truth about God and truth about men and truth about the world. Now, he asks throughout his letter, as a teacher, and I was a teacher just like this, I like to ask questions, constantly asking some hard questions and giving specific uh, you know, answers and right answers and wrong answers to those questions. And some of his questions are theological, like there are certain things you need to understand about the Bible. Some of his questions are moral. There are certain ways that we ought behave or ought not behave. And some are social, as in how we interact with one another. Here's some of the questions he asks, just like a teacher would. Questions of, who is Jesus? What did he do? How do we know he did that? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is a sinner? 
Am I a sinner? Do I want to stop being a sinner? Is it possible to believe in Jesus and continue to live and practice sin? He asked questions like, how has the love that Jesus has for me impacted my love for others? Can I believe in Jesus and not love other Christians and not love the church? How am I supposed to love non-Christians? So he has question after question after question like a teacher would that really distinguishes those who believe and those who do not believe. That's why it's such a hard letter. So he speaks as this priest. He speaks as what we'll call the kind of this teacher king, where he kind of like breaks it down. Here's what, here are the answers and the questions that you should be asking. And then finally, John also speaks at times as a prophet, very boldly, very directly. And he is less concerned about protecting the honor of the people and very much concerned with protecting the honor of God and the purity of the truth. So to that end, he draws some really stark lines that offend us. If they don't offend you, or at least cause you to kind of like, wow, that's really bold, then perhaps you're not really reading it as John is, is writing it. Because he makes some very direct contrast between, between belief and unbelief. He doesn't, it's very black and white. There are only two teams, he says. And those two teams have different names, but there's only two teams. And everyone here is on one of them. This is what we learn from John's letter. The two teams are those who walk in the light and those who hide in the darkness. Those who tell the truth about their sin, they're still sinful, they're just honest about it, and those who hide and lie about it or pretend they're not sinful. There are those who fellowship with the family of God and those who fellowship with the world. There are those who, he says, whose father is God and those whose father is the devil. There are those who follow Christ and those who follow the Antichrist. And there are those who are taught by the spirit of truth and those who follow the spirit of error. Two teams. So he comes out very boldly, unapologetically, making a very stark contrast that's difficult. So... Wherever we're at, wherever you're at, wherever I'm at, wherever, whatever we need, however we best learn, I believe John in his one letter hits all of us. And the truth is, when we need to hear truth, sometimes we need to hear it from a priest. We need someone to walk beside us. We need someone to give us comfort, call us beloved, my little kid, put your arm around you and walk you through the truth. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes you need kind of the king teacher. You need someone to go, okay, let's draw this out. You need this, you need this. Here's the question you need to answer. And it's, just, it's, it's almost intellectual, organized. How do I know I'm a believer? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Okay. Do you have this desire? Very, you know, organized. Sometimes we need that. We just need clarity that way. And other times, we need prophets. We need a prophet to come and pretty much slap us upside the head with the truth and say, repent. You know the truth. Turn now from your sin and start pursuing God. John hits all of it. And so the letter, I believe, is, is, is an awesome letter to address the core issue for all of us, which is, what are you going to do with Jesus? He tells us 
in verse 13, where I think Mark left off last week. In verse 13, he says, whether he's speaking as a priest, grandpa, whether he's speaking as a teacher and the king, or whether he's speaking as just a bull prophet, his goal in verse 13 is that I'm trying to assure believers. So 1 John is written to believers. I'm trying to assure believers of their eternal security in such a way that it makes them confident in their faith, helps them to think more clearly, to perceive things more accurately, and to basically act differently knowing the truth. It should change them. In verse 13 he said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So, if you want to know if you are a Christian, read 1 John. That's it. 1 John is a great test for us. And if you read it and go, I don't do that, and you feel convicted, that's a good sign. Okay? That is evidence of the Spirit working you, saying, look, you need to change some things. That's a good thing. No one should read 1 John and go, boom, got that. Boom, got that. Boom, got that. Dude, I'm like super Christian, okay? Problem is, now you're prideful, you sinful son of a gun, and you need to confess that, okay? So be careful, but it's a great test. It will encourage, but it will also convict us. Now, what John does throughout his letter, though, and in summary in these last uh, few verses here, is flesh out the Christian difference, okay? So I'm preaching to believers today. If you're not a believer here, you will see what a believer ought do. And maybe some of the believers you've seen have not done that. Go with the Bible, not always Christian, unfortunately. Now, the Christian difference is that a believer, someone who confesses Jesus, has three different relationships. They have a different relationship with God. They have a different relationship with one another with our brothers, with other Christians, and they also have a different relationship with the world. It should look different, it should sound different, it should be obvious. And this is what John hits. And he begins with our relationship with God the Father and says, this is the confidence that we have toward Him, God the Father, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us whenever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. I sat on that verse for a while this week because that's a big one. Did you catch the end of that? We know that we have the request that we've asked of him. How many unanswered prayers can you list? It should be zero if this is true. I'll explain. Up to this point, John has spoken about confidence, that term confidence, two other times. And two other times it's always been referring to Christ. So a future confidence we're going to have when Jesus shows up and I'm not embarrassed that I'm caught doing something I shouldn't be doing, okay? Or that I haven't behaved as I ought or loved as I ought. Now, this time, he talks about the confidence we have right now before Christ returns. And he encourages those who have the Son, those who have put their trust in Jesus, those who, by definition, have eternal life, to confidently speak with God the Father in prayer. To confidently speak to God the Father in prayer. As His children, we have the freedom to approach the God of the universe 
The God that knows the name of every star there is. That knows the number of the grains of sand as he knows the number of the hairs on your head. That knows the, the day you are going to die. Who knows everything. The God of the universe. We may approach confidently anywhere, anytime, for any need. Now, God promises many places, including Matthew chapter 6, to provide for our needs. All of our needs are undeserved, mind you. Okay? He's not obligated to provide for our needs, but that's, he does promise that he will. But he also has decided that many of those needs will be fulfilled through prayer. That we will pray and we will provide our needs. There's a reason why, as Jesus explains to the disciples how to pray, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us our bread, the bread you already promised us. So you're somewhat claiming what he's already promised. Now, as we approach God confidently, let's not forget something. And I was reminded of this as I read R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. That we are to approach God with a a fearful confidence. It's kind of like an intimacy with fire. Okay? It's like, as C.S. Lewis wrote in speaking about Aslan in Narnia, he is both beautiful and terrible. I'm both scared of him and drawn to him. There's a fearful confidence we have when we go before God. So before we read, like, confidently go before God, pray, and, and think that God is like, you know, we have unlimited cell minutes for our BFF God, and we can just call him and text him whenever we want. Let's hold off for a second and be careful how we approach God. And I don't want to be flipping with this, but I feel like we're flipping when we approach God, quite frankly. We are coming before God in his throne room to plead with him and ask him to bless us or to care for us. And we ought learn from a couple people. One is the prophet Isaiah. If you ever read the prophet Isaiah, it's a very long, it's the longest prophet, I believe, in the Old Testament, the book. In the sixth chapter, after the death of the king, Isaiah receives a vision. And Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God. And you have angels flying around singing, holy, holy, holy. And he realizes where he's at. And he is so overwhelmed with God and his awesomeness. He's so awe of him that he curses himself. He says in verse 6 or 5, I believe, of chapter 6, he says, woe is me, cursed is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And perhaps that's why Solomon, the wisest guy that ever lived in Ecclesiastes 5, wrote this verse. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So we have this tension. We're to confidently approach God the Father, but we must not forget who God is. We are to let our words be measured, let our words be humble, but let there be words. Words. 
There should and must be words. God the Father wants to commune with us through prayer. He wants to listen. He is listening. He wants to respond, and He is responding. And John says that our Father hears everything we ask, specifically when we pray according to His will. Now that's been an interestingly abused thing for people. And what it doesn't mean, in case you're wondering, is when you pray that you're asking for anything you want, and then as a little label on the end, going, let your will be done. How many of you have ever done that? Right? Lord, I know you know I want this, and this would be fantastic. I get this job, but you will be done. You will be done. You're really praying that that's his will, not necessarily concerned with what his will actually is. Now, praying according to God's will, I'm not going to go, because I don't think John's trying to give a whole theology on prayer here, but prayer according to God's will is more than just ending your prayer with that statement. What it describes, I think, is a heart attitude that distinguishes a true disciple from perhaps a non-believer. And what that distinction is, it's a commitment. It's an endeavor to not only speak what you want, but to enter prayer with the intention to discover what God wants. That's an entirely different perspective. We need to stop viewing God as this vending machine. Okay? That's how we view Him. God's this vending machine. You know how vending machine work. You walk up, you look at what you would like, all the options. You base it on what is really fattening and yummy versus what's cheap because you only have some coins. And then you pick it, and if it doesn't give you what you want, you shake it and kick it and ask for your money back wherever you got it. Okay? Let's make that an analogy for God, right? <laughs> Answers prayer. I didn't ask for that, right? I would have taken that, but that's too expensive. If you really want to view God as a vending machine, here's what he looks like. It's a big box. There's no money slot. You can't see anything, and there's one button that says God's will. Press it. And we don't want to. We've got needs, we've got desires, and we're like, yeah, I don't know, because I'll starve. But you think about that. God's will, what's it going to be? And a believer is convicted to believe that what comes out of there is actually what you need. Comes down, oh, I knew that's what it was going to be. Knew you were going to ask that of me. That's why I didn't even want to press the button. When we pray according to God's will, it's much more than just some routine to like, well, gosh, Lord, you know, bless my prayer that I just prayed that's totally selfish. By adding God's will in the end. Prayer is not a tool to impose your will upon God to get what you want. Our prayer is the means through which we seek actually what God wants. Typically, it's through His Word. And we ask 
and find ways to embrace it, especially if we don't like it. Because let's be honest, there are many things that God commands and asks of us that feelings-wise we go, ah, it's too hard, too difficult, I don't like that, it's going to hurt. And it's also the way that I believe prayer, where we align ourselves to change if that's how we feel. We'll read a quote from a theologian. Uh, Augustine was a great theologian many moons ago, one of the early church fathers. And here's what he wrote about prayer. Listen carefully if you would. He said, but again, one might ask whether we are to pray by words or deeds and what the need there is for prayer if God already knows what is needful for us. Great question. But it is because the act of prayer clarifies and purges our heart and makes it, our heart, more capable of receiving the divine gifts that are poured out for us in the Spirit. God does not give heed to the ambitiousness of our prayers because He is always ready to give to us His light. Not a visible light, but an intellectual and spiritual one. But we are not always ready to receive it. And we turn aside and down to other things out of desire for temporal things. For in prayer there occurs a turning of the heart to He who is always ready to give if we will but take what he gives. And in that turning is the purification of the inner eye when the things we crave in the world are shut out so that the vision of the pure heart can bear the pure light that shines divinely without setting, settling or wavering. And not only bear it, but abide in it, not only without difficulty, but even with unspeakable joy with which the blessed life is truly and genuinely brought to fulfillment. So prayer becomes the means, the tool, the gift through which our heart is changed to receive what God is ready to give us. And the truth is, a lot of us, hearts are not ready to receive what God is willing to give us, and we get very frustrated in prayer because he doesn't give us what we want or what we think we need. Prayer is that means by which our heart is changed and we're aligned with what God wants. And John says that our relationship is such that God not only listens and hears us, he says that as we pray, we have the requests that we've asked. So you think about, okay, I have prayed X, Y, Z, and I don't have it. What happened? Well, number one, you didn't pray in line with his will. What's his will? Read the Bible. You'll find out. Now, I'm not talking about what college I should go to. I'm talking about some larger issues that God actually cares about. Not that he doesn't care about you going to college, but it's pretty insignificant when we're talking about other things like, oh, I don't know, sexual purity. Okay? So, it's possible, according to John, that you just didn't pray in line with his will. So he didn't give you what you shouldn't ask for. The other is, second one, you don't like the answer or the delay. You realize that, and I hesitate to say this, I know people are suffering, but you've prayed to be healed. God hasn't healed you. John says he answered your prayer. 
I guess it's God's will not to heal you right now. That's difficult to rest in. To accept that that God actually says, yep, I've answered it. You need this, or this is my will for you to have right now. You lose your job. I want a job, Lord. Please, give me a job. You say, work is a blessing, Lord. I want to work. And he doesn't give it to you. Did he not hear you? He heard you. Did he not answer? He answered. Well, I'm going to give up praying then. Continue to pray that you might rest in what his answer has been. Continue to pray that you might let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, let you be grateful and thankful for what you have right now to be content. The other option is if you, know, you don't have what you want, maybe you just didn't pray at all. That might be the more likely option for a lot of us. My life is discontent. I don't have X, Y, Z. Did you think about praying? Not just once, but diligently communing with God in relationship with him according to his will. So our relationship with God is different. We are confident, we're expecting, we have answers to prayers, a Father who gives what we ask for according to His will. He answers our prayer. And that relationship with us, or with God, is supposed to transform this other relationship they have with other people, in particular brothers, he says, or fellow believers. So with God, our intimacy, our relationship, our change is evidenced by intimacy and prayer. We're now talking to the Father we once used to flip off. Now, with our brothers, it's the same thing. The fact that that Jesus has saved me, the fact that he's changed the way I think and the way I act and what I believe should not cause me to neglect everyone else and just kind of revel in my own salvation. Thank you for saving me. This is so wonderful. What it should do is move me from being my brother's competitor to my brother's keeper. But you cannot say, and John's tried to make this point, someone who's been transformed is supposed to be able to say this, but you can't say, I'm my brother's keeper and do nothing. You have to do something to demonstrate that that's the case. Otherwise, it's really not the case. I believe the maturity of our church... Okay, There's lots of ways you could tell a church being mature or a church is successful. And if you'd ask your, I don't know, someone who would try and be honest with you, they would say, how do, how do you know a church is successful? They would say, well, attendance, baptisms, buildings. They would give you numbers, stuff you could measure. Let me tell you what I believe the maturity of a church is going to look like. It's going to be the love for one another. It's going to be when someone posts, I need help, and you need four people, six show up. It's going to be when, when someone says, you know, my, my car's broken down, you have to like fight back people, no, I'm going to help her, no, I'm going to help her, I'm going to help her. you got people loving each other, serving each other, committed to one another, and committed even if that commitment demands more than they actually promised to begin with. That's the maturity of a church, I believe. The maturity of a family where it's truly serving one another without a program having to be in place. And I believe the first evidence of that is simply prayer. 
for one another. Now let me ask you this. I was thinking about this on the way to church today. And again, as I think about this, it's more like God goes, yeah, boom, and convicts me of something. I'm like, oh gosh, I better share that, okay? So I've already been convicted with this. I've already confessed my sin. Now it's your turn. So when you pray, when was the last time you prayed for somebody that wasn't you, wasn't a family member, or wasn't a good friend? When was the last time you actively prayed for just a brother? Well, the only reason you're praying for them is because you know that they're a Christian and you happen to be in fellowship with them in some way. It's an interesting question because I think most of our prayers are fairly selfish. Kind of like when we drive upon a car accident and because we don't recognize the car, we think, oh, good, I don't know what car that is. Kind of ignore it and dismiss it because it's not in front of our face. That's, I believe, the maturity of a church. Prayer for one another. And he says right here, that our prayer shouldn't just be offered for our personal needs, as he talked about God, but it should impact the prayer we have for our brothers. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And we'll talk about that. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for it. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So I believe when John says brother here, he's talking about fellow believers. And the thing that strikes me is that he says, if anyone sees a brother in sin, he should pray for him. Now, first thing I see is that, okay, I actually care about your spiritual life. Okay. Not the pastor. He's like, well, that's your job. Okay. So as, as brothers and sisters, I actually care what, how you loving Jesus that's a major thing. We care enough about, like, well, I'll care for your material needs. I'll kind of care for you and make sure I serve you and your kids on Sunday. But, like, to actually concern myself with someone else's spiritual life. Because that's what's going on here. This isn't like Sin Hunter. When they find all the sin and, like, well, you're sinning. I'm going to pray for you. It's beginning with just, I actually have a concern with something more than just the flesh or just material stuff I can fix with a paycheck. I actually want to pray for you. And the second thing is that you're close enough to the individual to know what they're struggling with. That's another major thing. Some of us, again, we know about five people in this church of three to four hundred. And we're not, I don't know how close we are to that person to know that I know this person's struggling with this. I want to pray for that person. It's not caught in sin as much as like, oh, my hand in the cookie jar. Oh, gosh. Do we know, have a concern for the spiritual life, and do we know how to pray for an individual who's caught in sin? To come alongside that person, to encourage that person, to rebuke that person, to speak with him as a prophet or as a king or as a priest, whatever might be needed there. To have a true love for our brothers that begins simply with prayer. This echoes back, I believe, to the first thing John wrote in the first chapter, which said there's a level of fellowship that we have. And as he speaks about fellowship, he speaks about confession of sin, about people sharing their dirt, about people being willing to to open up and say, I'm struggling with this. I have failed here. I have not loved my bride as I should have. I need help. 
We're so fearful to admit weakness. Hopefully you see me on Sunday up here admitting all my weaknesses because I got a ton. When you really think I haven't sinned this week, I had plenty of confession Monday through, well, I'm guessing today it's going to happen at some point as well, okay, right after the sermon. But the point is we have to have some level of transparency. That's maturity. That's not immaturity. That's actually maturity, and that's love for one another. Community was not just an addendum on Jesus' plan. It was actually part of it. It is actually, I believe, uh, part of God's design and our means through which we're changed. What exactly are we praying for for our brothers? Are we just praying that their needs are met, you know, that their cars are fixed, that they have help when they need help? Partly. But here he's talking about we pray that God will give them life because we know that sin leads to chaos and pain. So we're praying that they will turn from delighting in their sin to delighting in God when they're caught in sin. We're actually praying that they will stop believing the false promises of sin and believe the true promises of God. That God's way is actually good and joyful. We're praying not only for confession, but for repentance. For turning away from that which is not healthy not glorifying to that which is glorifying and joyful and good. That's a gift of God. 2 Timothy 2.24 tells us that repentance is a gift of God. So that's why we don't plead with the individual to repent, though I think it's okay to rebuke someone like, you need to repent. We're praying to God that they will repent. Because God is the one that changes hearts. You and I can't change squat. You and I can't redeem squat. You and I can't cause anyone to repent anything. I'm always blown away by people like, well, I led this person to Christ. What does that mean? You don't lead anything. You pray, they pray, God changes. That's what happens. It's all about God. But in this context, John especially wants us to pray for those brothers who have been allured, and he's talking about these people who have left and been allured by the false teachers. They've been led astray, they're wandering sheep, but he also says, Don't pray for some other guys. He says, don't pray for those who are committing a sin that leads to death. And a lot of people have struggled with trying to figure out what this means. There's lots of options. It seems like, because John didn't really go into detail, the the people he's writing to knew what he was talking about. But some people have said that this is uh, some just really heinous sin that God can't forgive which, for me, that doesn't work because I can't think of a sin like that. Especially especially when I see a guy like Paul, who is a murderer of Christians, being forgiven. Uh, It's difficult to imagine that. Some say it's a Christian who rejects God and then becomes a non-believer, but I believe since Jesus is saving, you're talking about Jesus losing somebody, not somebody losing Jesus, so that's impossible. Some say that it's maybe a sin that actually leads to physical death, like it's so bad that it actually just kills you, literally. And others say that it's the unfor- unforgivable sin that Jesus wrote about in, in Matthew, where they're basically blaming the Holy Spirit, the guys he's speaking with, um, and attributing the powers of Satan to the Holy Spirit. What I think he's most likely talking about in context is that he's referring to these false teachers, not the people who have followed him, but the false teachers who have left and they were proved to be pretenders. They're the unbelieving wolves themselves. 
These are, as he's described earlier, the Antichrists. The ones who have never possessed the Father, the ones who pretended to be family members, the ones who walked away, the ones who exchanged the truth about Jesus for lies, as well as the truth about the church and the Spirit for lies. And John doesn't say that it's wrong, sinful to pray for these people. He basically says it's useless. It's useless. It reminds us that every sin is serious. And in the very first chapter, John spoke about believers that sin. Everyone sins. We're to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9. But the fact of the matter is, when a believer sins, when a believer sins, he doesn't end up denying the deity or the humanity of Jesus and start hating the church. That's what doesn't happen. And that's what's happened with these guys. When a believer sins, he confesses, he repents, he is forgiven, and he is led by God, I believe, into the church to love the church, to receive healing in the church, encouragement through the church, not to hate the church. It's a difficult thing, but again, do we pray for people who uh, are false teaching and, and doing all these terrible things? It's not wrong to, but John says it may be futile. Maybe futile. So the letter concludes then with John affirming that all these things that we know now, now that he's written this letter, all the things that we know are enough to lead us to the one true God, and so we don't need to spend our time talking about things that we don't know, which is what these false teachers are talking about, new spiritual wisdom and all these new ideas, because they're only going to lead us away from him. And he says, what we know is going to distinguish us from the world that knows nothing. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So here are the things we know after reading John's letter. Very simple. If you are a Christian, you believe these things. We know God gives people new life. People don't get life for themselves. He gives them new birth. People don't rebirth themselves. It's all from God. It's a gift of God. It's a grace of God. He gives them new hearts, new minds, new desires. He does it. We know that those born of God, those whom God gives new life, those whom God takes and says, believe this foolish story about Jesus, we know it is their desire to stop walking and living in sin. Do they sin? Heck yes. But it is changed. Their disposition towards sin is changed. They understand that is not their desire anymore. That is not their, their intention anymore. They no longer delight in sin, even if they struggle with it. We know that Jesus, it says, protects us from ever being overcome by our sin. That's what it says. So we are secure in Christ. The world, for those who believe, will never overwhelm you. Temptation will never overwhelm you. Will you sin? Yes, but you will never, ever lose your salvation. 
And we know God is our Father, and we're under His power and His protection, a good, loving, patient Father. And we know that the world's Father is the devil. We know the world's Father is the devil, and it's under His power and abuse. We are loved by our Father. We are cared for by our Father. Even if we are disciplined by our Father, the devil has power and an abusive bent to him. His intention is to kill and to destroy. God's intention as a father is never to kill and to destroy, even if he disciplines through trial, through testing, through suffering. And we know that Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of God, Jesus, came to earth. We know that he really lived. We know that he really died. We know that he really rose again. These are the things we know. These are the things we trust And we know that because we believe in that, Jesus has sent his spirit so that we can tell the difference between a truth and a lie. And that we depend on him to do that. So those are the things you know if you are a Christian. Those are the things you believe if you are a Christian. And we know that Jesus is not just some good moral teacher. He is not just some religious rebel. He is not just some tragic hero. He is, as John says, God. He is God. He is eternal life. He alone is the means through which we will be reconciled to God the Father. He alone is the one through which, the only name given under heaven by which we must and may be saved. And John's final words remind us that any discontentment, it's kind of a weird little phrase there, right? It's like, little children, keep yourself in mind. What he's reminding us as just bringing up idols as the last thing he says, is that any discontentment you have, any discontentment I have, any dissatisfaction, any irritation, any discontentment we have in this world is a a direct result of trying to find meaning and purpose and hope and satisfaction and joy in some other God. There's many to choose from. Some choose relationships and try to find this person that will save them and give them meaning. And if I have a husband or if I have a wife, that will finally make me complete if I have children or not. Some people find meaning and hope and joy and satisfaction in substances. Some find it in sexuality. It's food. It's anything that you go, man, that is the thing that I'm going to sacrifice for, give myself to. And many of these things are good. But what it is is simply you replacing the Creator for something in creation. Even religion. Even Bible reading can become an idol a means by which you're trying to save yourself. Tim Keller, a great teacher, had said that it's not that we like bad things, it's that we like good things so badly. That's the problem. So when we begin to believe that something outside of Jesus, something outside of His Word, is going to make you happier, You've just committed the exact same sin that Adam and Eve 
where they believed outside of what God gave, whatever it was, and they got it all, was going to make them better, wiser, more beautiful, happier. But rest assured, and this is where our whole series has gone, that God has graciously saved us from our worship disorder through faith in Christ. By grace, we have been reborn. By grace, we have been forgiven. By grace, we have been accepted. By grace, we are protected. By grace, we are heard. By grace, we are led. By grace, we are taught. By grace, we are blessed now and in eternity. By grace, God will and has saved us for His glory and our joy. So, assured of God's grace then, what does He say? Keep yourselves. You have something to do. He can say, God has kept you. God is keeping you. Now keep yourself. We participate in it. We are fighting as Joshua stepped onto the battlefield. We step on and watch God do some amazing things. We still have to take a step. It's not enough just to resist false worship. Our hope is that you begin to worship Jesus fully with everything you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And where you have failed is why every Sunday we come and we commune at the table and we say, I have failed, I will continue to fail, I will fail tomorrow, but by God's grace I have been saved by Christ's perfection and not my own. That's where we rest. Rest assured in what you believe and rest assured that if you fail in your belief, God won't. Amen to that.